0: Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Glad you're here today. Uh, I, I, too, love the words and the message of that song. Um, I, I, I love the concept of one day with God is better than being anywhere else. And as we've been going through the story, the funny thing about singing that song right before what I'm about to say <laughs> is that that concept that being with God for one day is better than being anywhere else is a difficult for one one for us to grasp. Uh, our passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we read it last week. And I'm going to read it here again for you this morning. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said give us a king to lead us this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him listen to the listen to all the people listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who reigns over them will claim what the king who reigns over them will claim as his rights. There's a phrase that um, would seem to make sense and would seem to apply uh, in most situations, but it's one uh, that really doesn't, and those Those two words, this phrase, is the phrase common sense. There are a lot of things in life that we think should be plain. And yet we see over and over again that we as people are sometimes, if not often, prone to making poor choices. Uh, I was the youth minister here for a long time, so consequently I got to work with a lot of your teenagers. And in particular, I spent a lot of time with the boys of this church. And we had a guys group together every uh, Tuesday night at uh, Jeff and Kathy Bricker's house, and we would all get together, and it was kids from our youth group and kids from their school, and we just, we had a great time together. But let me tell you something about getting a group of, let's say, 12 middle school and high school boys together where it's just them. Bad decisions abound. <laughs> but as the youth minister, it was kind of fun to prey on that. Uh, so one year I was walking around Target uh, during the week looking for something, some sort of prop or something for the youth ministry, and I found on clearance, it was after cri- uh, Christmas time, I found on clearance the specialty Jones sodas from the Jones Soda Company. And they had made holiday sodas. And so there was uh, cranberry, um, but there was also Brussels sprouts. Um, There was turkey and gravy. And there were all these different things. So, of course, I saw that, and I thought to myself, I know I can get these kids to drink this. (laughs) So I bought it, and I brought it to Guy's Group, and we all stood around the counter. And I said, okay, so we we put them out there, and it it was a... kind of a test to see who would drink it. And do you know who was the most enthusiastic about drinking the Brussels sprout soda and turkey and gravy soda? Jake Bethel. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was Jake Bethel. And the best part about it was seeing the reactions on their face to how awful it was. But here's the best part. As soon as one of them would drink the grossest soda, do you know what he said to someone else? Oh man, you've got to try this. <laughs> This is awful. This is the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. I think I'm going to throw up. You have to try it. (laughs) There is something so true about that for us, I'm afraid. Better is one day with God than a thousand days somewhere else. Brussels sprout soda is not going to taste good. And yet, what decisions do we make (laughs) to drink it anyway, and then to encourage others to drink it, and then to go and try to find more so that we can have more friends drink it? This is what we do. And you're probably tired of me saying this at this point, but in the story, we are in this continuous cycle of behavior with the people of God. You could probably recite it to me right now, but it starts with what? They forget about God. God gives them over to their enemies. The people are miserable and they cry out to God. God delivers them. And with God on their side, no one can stand against them until they forget about God. And this has been happening for weeks with us now, right? Well, as bad as that seems, it's been happening for generations with the people of God over and over and over again. And you would think that the experience of winning so thoroughly with God on their side would make them want to drink that soda for the rest of their lives. And yet they keep choosing something else. And the thing that's most shocking about it, as we saw in this passage from last week, is that they were even willing to sacrifice the one thing that set them apart, the one thing that distinguished them, the one thing that gave them power for the stupid reason of wanting to be like everyone else. It would be like identifying the thing that is best about you. Your greatest talent, your greatest gift, the thing that makes you special and unique and deciding to never do it again so that you don't stand out from anyone. And here's the worst part to me about this. As they are doing this and making this choice, they have no idea what it is that they're actually doing. They believe that they're making the right choice for them. How often do we trade the glory of God for something that we want more, something that is more comfortable for us, something that does not make us stand out? How often do we give up what sets us apart as followers of Jesus so that we can look like everyone else, so that we can have what they have and be no different from them? I don't like those questions. But they need to be asked. Because the next question is just as important. What would happen if we lived a life that was remarkably different from those around us? To where there was no question that we belonged to God and God was on our side. What would that life be like? Uh, we are in the midst of our, our series called "The Story," and it's been really fun to talk to all of you um, uh, after Sundays or you know before Sundays or whenever we get to talk. Just whenever we get to talk, and um, so many of you are telling me how much you are enjoying uh, the story and what we're what we're learning and and seeing uh, seeing the Bible as this one long story. Um, and and I don't know. I'm I'm sort of curious about what sort. Of feelings you are having as we progress through this each week. Uh, I, I know what I feel as, you know, I open up each week and I'm looking at what the passages are, and a lot of weeks, the first thing that comes out of my brain besides, how am I going to cover an entire book in the time that I have, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is a sigh, like, here we go again. Uh, and it does sometimes feel like i'm telling the same story over and over again just with slightly different characters and slightly different circumstances uh, i am <laughs> thank you mike <laughs> thank you for for confirming that that feeling inside of me <laughs> and we have seen we we're seeing god struggle to have his place in the life of creation to, to be God to his people and to have his people belong to him. And he is, he's coming at it from so many different ways. And I was really frustrated by last week's story. It's one that has always stuck in my head. That conversation that Samuel has with God, the one that we read this morning. Where the people come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're not, a, you're not a good enough leader anymore. We want to have a king so we can be like everyone else. And Samuel goes to God and he complains to God about this fact that the people are rejecting me, they don't want me. And what does God say? He says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. I was their king. I was the one who goes before them in battle and I am the one that they are replacing. If you remember, what God does then is so fascinating to me because he says, so go ahead and have a king, but tell them what this king is going to do and make sure they know what's going to happen. And the thing that I want more than anything else in the story is for there to be a big win. I want there to be a big win. Um, and, and I wonder, when we're reading these things about the people of God being so victorious when God is on their side, right, to where they're marching around walled cities and the walls fall, to where they're, they're taking this land overwhelmingly when they don't really even have an army as they're developing as these people, all these amazing things that God does. And, and they live this way for a little while, and then they forget. And, and I just, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if they just stuck with God. If, if they just, if, if, if someone could just be completely on God's side, and could have enough influence to really change things within their world, like what would be possible? What could he or she do? Because I was really convicted by what we talked about last week, that if you look at it, what God needs from us is actually not a whole lot. He needs someone who will hear his voice, that will listen to the words that he's saying, and that will follow those words. And we know that God can do great things through someone who will do those things, who will hear, who will listen, and who will follow. But what do we see over and over again? People aren't doing that, at least not for any sort of consistent period of time, that it just keeps getting lost over and over again. But it's what I want to see so much. I just want to see someone stand up and say, don't you realize how amazing God is? Don't you realize how powerful he is? Don't you realize what God could do? Don't you realize that if God is on our side, that there is no one who can stand against us? And for them, it's not some sort of analogy that we play out like in our own spiritual lives. Nothing can stand against us. They have enemies that they are going against in battle. And I want someone to play that role, to stand up and to say, people, open your eyes. God is on our side. So what are we worried about? Why doesn't that happen? Well, for a little insight into those questions, we are going to look at a story about three of your favorite Bible characters, their names are Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. I know it's like I'm reading your mind, right? Like, I love those guys. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. Now, who are Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema? They are, you, you should know this, they are part of what is perhaps the most famous story outside of Jesus being crucified and born that is in the Bible. Let me read to you the passage here. "'Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why do you come out and line up for battle? "'Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? "'Choose a man and have him come down to me. "'If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. "'But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us.' "'Then the Philistine said, "'This day I defy the armies of Israel.' Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Philistines were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, who are they? They are sons of Jesse, but that's not what we would know them for. They are the older brothers of David. Yes, that David This would ultimately be their claim to fame, what they are known for. They are the brothers of the giant killer. They are the brothers of perhaps the greatest warrior and leader that Israel has ever known. They are the brothers of the king. But here's a question that bothers me a little bit. Why are these stories that are told about their brother not told about them? Do you get what I'm saying? Why isn't this the story of these guys? Who grew up in the same house, had the same experience of life, and yet end up in such a different place. Well, we actually learn a lot about these three men based on the story here with Goliath. So here's the situation. Israel is at war. Okay, and and we know that this has been a long-running thing, right? Since the time they came into the Promised Land, they are surrounded by enemies. There are people that want to uh, take over what they have taken. There's all this stuff going on. And in particular, they are at war with the nation of Philistine. And they have come to a place where there is a standoff. So they are basically uh, on on either side of one another. They're looking at each other. each on a hill with this valley in between them. And Goliath is the champion of the Philistine army. And so he comes out every day and he challenges one champion from the nation of Israel to come out and to fight him. If he wins, Philistine wins. If He loses, then Israel wins. And so he goes out there every day and asks for the best fighter to come out and fight him. And Goliath is defiant. He says mean things about them, about their families. It's just, it's an ugly situation that we have going out there. But Goliath has good reason to be defiant, because he is what? Giant. Giant. He is a mountain of a man. Uh, here's how he is described in the Bible. A champion named Goliath. So keep in mind, he is, he is a champion, which means what? He has already defeated the best warriors from other places. Who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was 9 feet 9 inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 15 pounds. He could throw something where just the head of it was 15 pounds. If you are hit by that spear... (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're done. Shish kebab, baby. Right? That's all, that's all that there is. On hearing the Philistines' words as he's out there shouting, Saul and his Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Well, of course they were. Of course they were. Because they look out and what do they see? They see an, an unfathomable warrior. I want you to understand something about Goliath. This was really psychological warfare at its best. They, you couldn't have any greater form of intimidation than this. Because everybody looks at Goliath and what do they know? He's stronger than me. He's bigger than me. I weigh as much as the armor he's carrying on him. And if I go out there to fight him, I am going to die. There is no other feasible option. I mean, the dude is nine foot nine. I'm six foot two. So he's three and a half feet taller than I am. He's a big, big man. And Israel looks out and they are dismayed and terrified because what is the conclusion they have come to? We cannot fight you because there is no way we can win. And this has been going on for forty days. Forty days he's walked down there. Now on day one, how did the Israelite army feel when Goliath walks out there? Whoa, that's a big dude. Maybe they look around at one another. You gonna no. No. Maybe tomorrow. How do they feel on day forty? If you ever had something that you knew was going to happen, but it's like two months out and you're dreading it, that's building every single day. By the time day 40 rolls around, there is no heart left in Israel. It's gone. So this has been going on for 40 days and David is coming to the camp. He's going back and forth to deliver supplies that he drops off to his brothers who are part of this group that are looking out there every day and are seeing what's going on. Now, Goliath makes an important observation that we need to recognize here because it's an important distinction that he makes. Listen to what he says. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Now, here's something I want you to understand. Who does Israel see themselves as serving at this point? Saul, And if Saul is the one they are serving, can they defeat Goliath? No, because Goliath is that big and that good. So here comes David and he's delivering these supplies. And while David is there, Goliath comes out to issue his challenge to everyone. And he steps out to speak and everyone runs and hides. People are looking away. Maybe at this point some have even tuned him out. Like they're just going about their own business. But this is the first time that David hears this. Now, the Israelites have been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men, saying near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now when Eliab, who is? One of David's older brothers. David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Okay. Number one, I love the indignation on the part of the Israelite camp. Like, it's just, it's so great. And think about where they are. Saul is offering... Basically everything he can offer as a king for someone to go out. And who's going out? Nobody. David shows up, okay, and he hears what Goliath is saying, and what is his response? Who is this clown? And who is he to come out and defy the armies of who? The living God. Not the army of Saul. Who is he to come out and defy the armies of the living God? And why is no one going out to shut him up? David genuinely doesn't understand. How is it possible that an entire army, trained sent out to fight can see the situation so differently from a young kid who is a shepherd. And his brother hears him talking to people and asking these questions and saying this thing, and what does his brother say? Man, would you just stop? Enough already. I know what you're like. I know how confident you are in yourself. I know how wicked you are. You just want to see a fight. Why don't you just go home and take care of the sheep? That sounds pretty older brother-ish. I think I've, I think I've had a conversation like that once or twice. Hopefully that will stop soon. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Praise God! David is incredulous that this situation has been allowed to continue, and so he starts to talk to people about it. And and his brothers, who are part of this hiding crowd that are scared to death, they got mad. So, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema are looking at the situation, and they see a giant ready to kill them. They have followed their king, their leader Saul, out to this place, and now they are stuck, and there is not much hope for them. They are scared, they are bitter, like everyone else, they are unwilling to move. And because this is who they are... That is why the story is not about them. That is why they are just taglines and characters within a bigger story. Because they followed Saul. And they got out there and they were scared and they would not move. David, however, cannot let it go. (laughs) He sees the giant, he talks to, the, to the, the other soldiers, he's put in his place supposedly by his brother, but he can't let it go. And so he starts asking other people, have you seen this? Why is anyone stopping him? Why didn't you what's going on? Do you hear what he's saying? This has been going on for 40 days, so yes, everyone has heard what he's saying. Can you believe this? Why hasn't someone stopped him? 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 And it's going around so much that the king himself hears about this kid running around the camp asking why no one has stopped Goliath. So so he tells him, he brings uh, David in to talk with him. They gets together and David, the shepherd boy, comes and meets with the king. And David tells the king that he will go fight the Philistine with this sort of like, dude, let me take care of this joker. Just let me do it. This is is kind of his attitude about it. As defiant as Goliath was when he is coming out and mocking the army of Israel, David is just as defiant about who Goliath is. the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, hold on a second. Maybe David has good reason to be confident. I mean, after all, he's been a, he has chased down both a lion and a bear. And then he struck the lion and the bear. And when the lion and the bear were like, hey man, what are you doing? I'm a lion or a bear. He grabs it by the hair and kills it. But then, listen to what he says because this last part is the important part. He says, he will go out, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Understand what he's saying. This guy is nothing more than what? He's just an animal. There is nothing to him. Because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So his brothers think he's cocky and they think that he's overconfident and that he's wicked. But this is the first thing besides... We, we p- probably would believe that at this point. Until David speaks and tells why he feels the way he does. Which is what? If God is fighting... Then, then it's over. If God's fighting, then it's over. Already. So the question that he has which no one else has asked is, what are we waiting for? What is everyone else waiting for? Someone else to do it or for Goliath to get laryngitis to where he can't come out and yell at them every day. Uh, Perhaps, I would imagine his cholesterol is sky high, right? (laughs) Maybe he has some sort of heart attack or something. This is what they're hoping for. And David gets there and he says, what are we waiting for? God will do this. And the craziest thing about this is that Saul agrees. Okay. Go ahead. And he wants to give David armor. And David says, no thank you. For one thing it's too big. And for another thing he just doesn't need it. So, He decides that he's going to go face the Philistines. So the Philistine, Goliath, is out here talking. David walks over and picks up what? Rocks. Five stones. Smooth stones. Aerodynamic stones. I want you to imagine this scene for a second. Army. Army. Goliath. And a child walking down the hill. What must that have looked like? Ridiculous is an excellent observation. It looks crazy. And what must the people, the soldiers of Israel be thinking? I would imagine at this point some of them are starting to grab their things. So he goes to face the Philistine. He gets out there, and I would. Have, Goliath can't believe like this is what's happening, but <laughs> David wants him to know who he is and why he's there. So David walks down there and starts taunting, is the only way you could say it. Goliath, he's going to talk a little trash before he kills him. Truth. This is, what, this is what goes on. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day... I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our Hands. I love this moment. Do you know why I love this moment? Because this is what the story should be. This is what the story should be. Impossible odds? Yes. Something that doesn't make any sense at all? Absolutely. God is going to win? You betcha. This is what the story should be. And for 40 days, they have sat there waiting for someone to finally say, Can't God win this? Isn't this already won? What are we waiting for? How long are we going to let him talk like this? And he wants, David wants, one thing to be clear. You're not fighting me. (laughs) You're fighting God. And because you're fighting God, you're going to lose. You just don't know it yet. David does everything that he said he would do. He throws how many stones? One. One. Which sinks into Goliath's forehead and he falls over dead. David then... Cuts off his head. I can't imagine how we held it up because that sucker had to be huge. And the armies... Th- there's this moment where the armies of Israel see this happen and then what do they do? They fight. The Philistines hear this speech. They see what happens and what do they do? They run. Because... Who has just entered the scene? It's not David. It's God. And there is a moment where the Philistines realize we cannot win. And the army of Israel realizes we cannot lose. And the entire story changes. The entire story changes because one person Was willing to walk down the hill and call on the name of the Lord and let God win. Let God win. Think about that for a second. Why hadn't God won before? Because no one would ask him there. Are you serious? No one would ask him to be there until David walks down the hill. And says, it is already done. There's a dirty secret about this story. There's a dirty secret about this story. Anyone could have done what David did. Anyone could have done what David did If they had trusted God, if they had been able to check their fear at the door, if they had been able to conceive of a world in which God is the ultimate power. If, if they had been able to accept that God was fighting for them, if they had been willing to step out and allow God to work through them, this could have been the story of Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. It could have been the story of anyone. But it was the story of one person. who amongst a nation of people was the only one who would step up and say, God is here, and if God is here, we cannot lose. So this moment is sort of like the coming out party for David. He doesn't have to do anything the rest of his life. He could live on this moment forever. And is there any better way to announce your presence to the world than to go out and defeat the giant? No. But we need to remember something about David's... the way he thinks. He's already defeated the bear and the lion. But who did it? And he fought Goliath so that the world would know what? That there is a God in Israel. And his story is not that he be Goliath. What is his story? That God be Goliath. You have a champion now that will stand up and will fight with God on his side. So, what would you think would happen next if this is this person who is an amazing person who will stand up and will do these things? His life has to be awesome. After all... God is on his side, and if God is on his side, he can't lose. So, it's going to be victory after victory, right? Wrong. Wrong. On one hand, yes, it is victory after victory, but on the other hand, something very different ends up happening. In many ways, after David beat Goliath, his life becomes impossibly hard. And I'm not kidding about that. His life becomes impossibly hard. Listen to this. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. He's climbing, right? Why? Because God is on his side, and he believes in God. David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Of course it did. Because with David leading them, who is on their side? God. And with God on their side, do they lose? No. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, (laughs) the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. With joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. People are making songs about him. So David is having great success because he is God's champion. And Paul, Saul puts him in, in charge of his, all, all of his armies. And he's so great that as he comes home, people are singing in the streets about him. This is our idea, church, of what having God on our side means. We are always victorious and we are parading through towns and people are singing about how wonderful we are. We should know victory and our victory should be great and people should be singing our praises and the church should have 50,000 people in it because that is what victory means. But here is the truth. All of this success that David has actually makes his life So awful. Is God giving him victory? Yes. But it brings with it so many more problems. After all, the songs that people are singing are comparing David to whom directly? Saul. And Saul is at the head of this parade. And what is he hearing everyone say? David is better than you. David is better than you, David is better than you with the timbrel and the harps. Hey, David is better than you. David is better than you, right? And they're they're dancing to it. It's um, that's the tune from the Bible, you can look it up. <laughs> Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns and everything he did he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Okay. Some interesting things here. There was a problem with David being so popular and successful and the the reason was this. Saul was king but David clearly had power. And Saul looks at the situation and says, there's only one thing left for him. That is for him to take what's mine. And so, something really strange happens. An evil spirit comes on Saul. Where does the evil spirit come from? It comes from God. And what does Saul try to do? He tries to kill David. Can he? No. So instead, what does he do? He puts David in charge of an army of a thousand and sends him out. And David's army goes out and beats who? everyone. They go out and they beat everyone. Why? Because God was on their side. And the more successful that David is, the more afraid Saul becomes. And this tension is growing. Why would God send a spirit to Saul which would then encourage Saul to to try to kill David? Let me ask you this question. Who did Saul replace? God. Who was God with? David. Who was God not with? Could Saul kill David? Not if God didn't want it to happen. Did God want it to happen? No, because who does God want David to be? The next king. Why? Because David hears, listens, and follows. He stands up for God. And so the spirit comes on to Saul that is driving him to the edge of this relationship with David, to where he actually takes action. And what does Saul discover? I can't. I can't eliminate him. And so what does Saul do? Send him away. God has a plan. He wanted David to be king. He withdrawn his presence from Saul. And so everything that he did was to move that story along. But we learn something about living a life that is empowered by God. It is victory, and ultimately we go where God wants us to go. But I want you to understand something. When you are fighting on God's side when you have God with you. It is not a glamorous endeavor. In fact, it, it, it's pretty rough. David has had a period in his life which was marked with dramatic uncertainty. He was one of the most powerful men around, but he was not safe anywhere. And Saul changes his mind and wants to try to kill him again. Actually waits outside of his house to try to ambush David as he comes out and kill him. But guess what happens? David escapes. And so he and his army are like floating around Israel. And Saul and his army are floating around Israel. And they're just kind of out there. But he was forced to go from one place to the next. No place was safe for him. And there was always fighting. Always. There was always fighting. Everywhere they went, there was fighting. And David is fighting the enemies of Israel. They're kind of warding off the armies of Saul as they look for David. Saul had an army that was fighting on the main fronts of Israel and was also sending out people to chase David. But here's the crazy thing. In all of this, David trusts God. David trusts God. And he asked God to continue to fight for him. And this is true. If you go back and read the story, this might be something that you missed during this period if you're familiar with it. David doesn't do anything without asking God first. There's a Philistine uh, raiding group that has come in and has done something. And God wants, David wants to go fight him. Guess what he does first? He prays. And God tells him, go. And then he goes. Someone has stolen a bunch of stuff over here and and he wants to go take care of that. And guess what he does first? He prays and asks God if he should go and God says go and he goes and he wins. This is how David lives his life while he is running from the king that wants to kill him. While he has no home. And it's one thing to talk about people trusting in God and looking at these stories and being amazed by it. But you need to grasp how fully and completely David trusts God and listens to him. And we have this story, this last one we'll look at here. Listen to this passage. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, weird situation, right? It's just weird. Saul's looking for David. He finds David without knowing that he's found David. And let's just say he's in a vulnerable position. And his men look at him and say, what? This is it. He has walked into our cave. God is delivering you to him. And and David does this weird thing where he goes up and cuts off the corner of his robe. But listen to what happens next. Afterward, David, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. I can't believe I just did that. Afterward, he was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord, my king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground and said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father... Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you, as the old saying goes: "From evildoers come evil deeds." So my hand will not touch you. Against whom, as the king of Israel, come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Okay, here's, here's what I want us to see here. He could have killed him, he didn't. He had people saying that God was on his side and this is it. And he even sort of recognized it, but he still didn't do it. And then he comes out and he begs for forgiveness. But he points out to him what? What? I could have, but I didn't. Why didn't he? Because God had not told him to. Because God had not told him to. Don't we sometimes think that victory is winning those moments in the cave? God has given this to me. But what does David see that we don't see? But God hasn't told me to. What looks like victory really isn't. Instead, David wins in an entirely different way. I am not trying to kill you. In fact, I didn't. And listen to what he says about himself. Who am I compared to you? You're the king. I'm a dog. I'm a flea. I'm nothing compared to you because God put you in your place and I will not remove you. And you know what? God never told him to remove Saul. And that job doesn't fall to David. In fact, Saul is surrounded. Their forces are going down. Because who is not with Saul? God. Saul sees that things are getting bad. He tells his sword bearer, would you just go ahead and kill me so I don't die in battle? I know what they're going to do to me if I die in battle. The guy says, no way. So Saul takes out his own sword and kills himself. And then the sword bearer takes out his sword and kills himself. And the army comes in and they take Saul's body and they do just what he was afraid they would do with it. A messenger runs as fast as he can to tell David, Saul is out of the way. It's all yours now. And do you know what David did? He killed the messenger. Because there was no celebrating the loss of God's anointed. Even if he was going to become king. With God, there is great victory. But let me tell you something. God has enemies. And therefore, with God on our side, we will always be fighting. Being on the side of God does not make life easy. You will gain victory, amen? Amen. Because there is no one that can stand against God, Amen? amen? And guess what? Even if someone takes our life, all they've done is send us to God faster. Because God has won the victory, Through Jesus Christ, we have life forever. There is nothing that can stand between us and that. But in this life we live, if we are fighting with God, it means we are fighting. That there will always be struggle. Because there are always those who want to remove God from his place and put something else on that throne. And fighting with God doesn't mean that you get to put all those clowns in their place. It means that you have to listen to God and go where God tells you to go because you are only victorious when you are fighting the battles he wants you to fight in the way he wants you to fight them. And that's hard for us. But Zula mentioned trust this morning. And here is the thing about trust. We can say we trust God all we want, but trust doesn't mean anything until we're in the struggle. You're not trusting God when everything is going your way. Because you don't need to. Everything's going your way. But when things stop going your way, that's where trust becomes a real thing. Can you trust him with victory, even though your life is a fight on every front? David, the great champion of God, graduated from bear and lion, to giant, to foreign armies, to his own king. But he trusted God Even when he was homeless and running for his life, he trusted God and he knew that God would not send him the wrong way. It was not easy. It was hard. It was really, really hard. But in the end, whose story is this? It's God's. And who does God put on the throne? The man who will follow him. The man who will follow him. God always has enemies. And just something for us to think about this morning. If we're not fighting any battles, then maybe we're not as on the side of God as we think we are. Because God always has enemies. And when we are with him, listening to him, following him, we are going to have enemies as well. We are going to be in the midst of struggle. But with God on our side, we will always be victorious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith of David, for how he displays what it means to stand up and say who you are. We're thankful for the victory that you gave him. But Father, we're also thankful for the way that we can see that there are always those fighting against you. And that, God, if we are on your side, we are going to have enemies. That, God, becoming who you want us to be is not easy, but it's a struggle. So, God, help us to seek you out to ask for what we should do and help us to hear your voice, to listen to what you're saying and to follow you. For God, we know that if we will hear and listen and follow, then we will win. For this is your story. The God of heaven and earth, the redeemer of all mankind and through Jesus, you have defeated all enemies, even our greatest enemy, sin and death. May we trust you, God. May we hear your voice. May we listen to you and may we follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.